0: Welcome to EPAR Trade Live. Uh, these webinars are, are awesome and they're fun and they uh, t- uh, give a ton of information and insight. It's kind of like having a TV channel for the racing industry. So this is working out really great. Uh, today's webinar is fine tuning your engine building process, machining tips that make a difference. So we have a son and veteran Bob Dolder here, and then Chuck Lynch, AAR, uh, which is Engine Builders Association, Director of Technical Services. I'm your host, John Kilroy, and I'm Chief of Content and Audience Development for ePartrade. And before we get to the meat of the webinar, I just wanna say a few quick words about ePartrade. We're in our third year of business. We're strictly a racing industry company. We're not active anywhere else. And the executive team of ePartrade has decades of experience each in the racing industry. So we know this business. And basically we've tasked ourselves with providing the worldwide racing industry as a whole with an online strategy. So other industries have that, and it's time that the racing industry has that as well. So it's kind of three pronged. Uh, we have e-part trade, where you can use our smart sourcing technology to source racing technology and suppliers. Not an e-commerce site, but you can find information and who you want to contact within the platform and contact the supplier within the platform. This is easier. It's no charge. It's very productive, and uh, and, and it works. So. Uh, use ePartrade to source uh, technology suppliers. And then we have uh, these these webinars, Trade Live, and they're going great. And something new is just taking off and we're glad you're here. And then uh, get ready for online race industry week, uh, November 30th through December 4th, so Monday through Friday. With the racing trade shows canceled this year, uh, Trade was poised with all the resources to step in and provide you with a trade show experience online so it's safe. And we just can't afford as an industry, we can't afford to really miss that opportunity that we have every year to share information, contemporary, updated information, and then kind of review and shop uh, the 2021 new product line introductions. So that week you'll be able to go to ePAR trade and catch up with uh, the 2021 new product line introductions and just shop around. Uh, we already have hundreds of companies sh- uh, signed up with showcases, and we're having uh, new suppliers sign up every day. We're g- we have 50, uh, uh, 50 sessions of uh, tech webinars uh, already confirmed. So we just got to lock them in a schedule. Who's going to be at Tuesday at 10 a.m.? Who's going to be Thursday at, at 2 o'clock? And we're doing that now. We should have a schedule for you next week. Uh, we've also, we're working with uh, racer.com to provide some webinars that are basically state of the industry uh, kind of webinars uh, or also just for fun. So you can have lunch with Brian Herda and he'll talk about developing a winning race team. Uh, we'll have Chip Ganassi sharing his thoughts on the racing industry today. Uh, we have now Don Perdome has agreed to kind of work with us. So we have a dinner with Don Perdome or a happy hour with Don Perdome. Uh, one of the all-time greats in American racing. And uh, to me, he's one of the coolest guys ever. So I'm sorry, Steve McQueen, Perdomes Schooler. And we'll have a lot more going on. (laughs) Um, We have one login for the whole week's content. So it's very easy for you no charge to attend. And then for you guys kind of running your engine shops, you can invite the whole team to participate. They can all have the login, uh, just have them all registered. And then we know who everybody is and how many people participated. But uh, use it as a, a training tool and also invite the whole team to go on ePAR trade and shop around and, and get their perspectives on uh, new products and new technology. And then it's, it's, the great thing uh, about online experience is that uh, no airfare, no hotels, none of that. You get to stay in your place of business and um, just kind of attend uh, right from your desk. So um, that's uh, online race industry week. We ask you to sign up sooner than later, so go on today. get your Zoom login. And then uh, quick housekeeping notes on kind of what we're doing today. So all the webinar uh, attendees have been muted and you're not in video so there's no distractions. But we do want your questions. So there's a a chat option at the bottom of your Zoom screen and you can type in your question there. I'll be reviewing it and and Bob and Chuck can review it as well and we'll we'll get your questions answered. Um, So just start now and, and give us your questions. Uh, This is a very sophisticated audience of professional race engine builders from around the world. Uh, These guys can handle your questions, uh, so just kind of let's go and and get your questions answered. So uh, our speakers today, first of all, it's great to be working with Sonnen. So hello to our longtime Sonnen friends, Bob and Wolf. Good to see you again in this environment. Uh, I've known these guys for almost 30 years now. It's unbelievable. Uh, Sunnen is not just a great machining company, but a great racing industry company. So they run the engine charity sweepstakes at the PRR trade show, just a great annual trade show for the racing industry. has raised tons of money, tons and tons of money for the Penny Family's Victory Junction ga- Gang Camp for kids with terminal or debilitating illnesses. Uh, if you're a race engine builder, you can't think of going to a real racing trade show without thinking of Sunnen. I've been to Facility, just one of those great Midwest American companies so with a long history, solid as a rock, almost 100 years old, and, and now they've uh, grown become a brand long recognized and valued all around the world. So number one name and honing, they do business on a global scale, and I counted them up. They have offices in 15 countries, so a, a leading player in other industries as well as, as racing. So it's great to have Son in here. Uh, Bob has worked for Sun for a long time. He's been in the engine uh, rebuilding business for 48 years. Uh, he's worked as a parts counterman, worked in the machine shop, taught at a community college, uh, sold machine shop equipment, and presented numerous workshops, webinars, and seminars already. He spent the last 21 years of his career working for Sun and Products Company, with his last position being the automotive sales and application manager for Sunn's line of honing machines. Uh, Bob's retired, but he's still working with Sun and Bastard. Uh, sea of knowledge with Bob, so we're glad he's here. Then Chuck Lynch has been in the automotive aftermarket for over 30 years. He served in the uh, Marine Corps as a service repairman with general support and maintenance, uh, but rebuilt engines, transmissions, and rotating ele- electric components for fleet service. After leaving active duty, uh, Chuck spent 20 years in the production engine rebuilding segment, Jasper engines and transmissions. And then uh, he's worked as a field service technician for Rottler and a PER sales engineer for Molly Cleavie. So just a great history within the racing industry. Thank you guys for joining us and sharing this time with us. And I have questions for you, but uh, maybe there's a place you'd like to start when it comes to machining strategies for race engines. Bob, do you wanna kick us off here?
1: Sure, happy to. And, and thank you for the very nice kind words about the company that I work for. And uh, I'm still consulting. I can't get away from it. It's, it's in my blood. They say son and salesmen always have honing oil in their blood and I still have it. Thank you again. Uh, but we are, we are very much, uh, you know, some people have said that we're out of the uh, automotive engine rebuilding business and that's the furthest thing from the truth. There are several parts on an internal combustion engine that needs to be honed. And we feel that we're the experts in that field and we continue to do that. We have uh, representatives out there every day and uh, happy to field any of your questions. Uh, you can still contact me via my email, which is bdolder at and ask me questions. And I still have uh, my uh, my computer and my cell phone from Sunnend Products. So, I'm readily available. May not get back to you as quick as I used to, but I'm you know, i I'm sitting there looking for those, those questions and I'm happy to answer anything that I, I can to help you. And again, thank you very much for the wonderful introduction.
0: Thank you for being here. Chuck, I do you want to kick us off as far as uh, what we're gonna be discussing today?
2: Okay, so I work on the tech line and have a lot of history uh, in the automotive machining. Uh, kind of my passion has been making chips fly. So anything that you would want to ask about machining, uh, tolerances, and the interrelationship to the parts that engage them, that's pretty much what we do on a daily basis at AERA uh, is provide technical consult on the engine machine shop side of it. Now over time, uh, as we've become more involved with the ancillary components that bolt on, uh, it is diverging into Controls, turbos, fuel systems, things of that nature, but uh, primarily we're we're out to assist the engine machine shop.
0: Okay, uh, Bob, in all your years and, and watching people hone their engines uh, and coming to this webinar, is there a, a, an initial message that you want to give to the race engine builders out there? Your, your first piece of advice.
1: Uh, I. You know, in, in today's world, uh, you know, the, uh, the specifications are so much tighter than what they were 48 years ago when I first began this. Uh, you know, it just keep it getting tighter and tighter and your machining processes are very, very critical to that. Uh, you know, okay. I, would, uh, I would encourage everybody out there to have ways of measuring uh, and measuring correctly as well as, uh, you know, a good quality machine and uh, good quality tooling. Uh, a lot of times I run into situations where uh, customers call me and they're having all kind of trouble and at the bottom line is their tooling's just wore out. Uh, you know, so we need to, uh, we need to pay, pay close attention to that. Uh, I think that's very, very critical in today's engines, racing engines in particular. Uh, Because they're, uh, again, we're going to the maximum power that we can get out of that internal combustion engine. And to achieve that, you need to have that specification and that machining process done correctly.
0: Chuck, do you want to add to that? When when you came uh, to this webinar, was there one kind of initial message you wanted to share with race engine builders?
2: You know, the... The thing with race engine builders is they are very accustomed to holding tight tolerance and the modern engines are, they kind of are emulating the race engine world. So EcoBoost or something of that nature, the diesel engines, those guys have been used to working in in a platform where that they know that all the piston heights are within a couple of thousands. That didn't used to be the case as Bob mentioned earlier, if a piston height varied 20,000 centibores, they didn't really pay much attention. We still do have struggles and challenges with the manufacturing of crankshafts, connecting rods that we have, stack-up tolerances that that we have to deal with. But the, the performance guys are pretty crafty and they deal with that type of stuff. But it does make a difference. Uh, we take a lot of calls on resurfacing cylinder heads. And the importance of keeping balance between combustion chambers if you have a warped head you need to really analyze that what impact is that going to have in your performance and reliability uh, if you have castings that are too far warped or something you don't see that so much when you're putting all new components together but there is a segment of nostalgic muscle car building and you need to uh you need to put forth the effort to make sure that everything is uniform, well-balanced, so that you have a strong, reliable, balanced engine, so.
0: Okay, and then again, uh, if you put the cursor down at the bottom of the Zoom screen, there's a chat option, and, and please write in your questions, and then you can be as specific as you want, as technical as you want. So I, here's a, a question. Uh, if a block has been aligned bored, should it still be aligned honed?
2: Yes i'll go ahead and start this one off. Um, so if you think of precision anytime you're making components, uh, honing, grinding lapping those are those are all processes that are extremely precise. They can control surface finish well, geometry cylindricity so from that component yes it's it's ideal to align hone even when you bore the the align honing can give you good surface finish but the bearing really likes that because i i can increase the amount of contact from the backside of the bearing i was working with a bearing engineer many years ago and was asking about hey do we really need to to hone these housings when we machine these connecting rods and he said Yes, please do, because the, what you do is you create traction for the backside of the bearing. So you create a surface finish. The more contact I can have with the back of that bearing, the better it's going to stay in place. The, most of the performance guys know that the locating tang on the back of the bearing, doesn't. it's not a lock. It doesn't hold it in position. It's the crush of the bearing. The bearing is actually bigger than the bore that it's in, but it's the contact. Now surface finish matters because if you get too aggressive with your surface finish when you hone or bore, you you can allow a lot of oil to get behind the bearing. If you have too much film thickness and then it cooks, it's called coking. When that happens, it's basically, it's turning to like glass. Well, glass is not a good conductor. It's more of an insulator. So your bearing surfaces can operate at higher temperatures. So you do want to, again, improve the contact surface area, dissipate the heat. And again, uh, it's about the most precise surface that you're gonna create is, is by honing. Bob?
0: Uh,
1: the only thing I would add to what Chuck has, has uh, said is uh, when you're line honing uh, it, it, uh, versus line boring, uh, line boring, you can get off a little bit one way or the other, where we're, when you're going in with a line hone, you're correcting the tunnel so it's straight from front to back. And that's very critical. The other thing that I would add to that is, uh, y- you know, you can make, uh, the best way to put this is make sure that you know what you're doing when you're line honing. Because you can create a worse situation if you if you don't. Uh, There's a lot more to line honing than just sticking a mandrel in and stroking it back and forth. There's feed pressure, there's oil, there's things of that nature to really keep it straight. And the mandrel can go, uh, you know, it make high spots and low spots if you do not stay on top of keeping that mandrel true. Uh, Those are all, those are very, very important issues when when you're line honing versus line boring.
0: And we have a question from the audience. Uh, rumor has it that some engine builders refuse to assemble engines on a stand, as the uh, as the block or the stand could distort and throw off uh, measurements. Any basis for that? Have you ever heard that before? Uh,
1: that that's a new one on me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 you know, I know that uh, you know back in the day when we start first started to. Uh, Uh, you know, do machining on blocks, uh, is we would uh, hook everything to it that we possibly could. We put the bell housing on it, of course, torque plates, Uh, you know, anything that could go on that block that would uh, distort the way we machine it, that would happen. But I, I honestly have, I have not heard that the engine stand itself could distort
0: things. Okay. That's good to know that you guys haven't heard about it. Here's another question. Uh, I'm used to doing uh, HD motors that need torque plate for boring and honing cylinder for assembled distortion. I'm now doing one long 100 snowbill racing. Do they need a torque plate?
2: So, anytime you can apply a torque plate with a head gasket, so forth, and you recreate that distortion that's going to happen when the engine is assembled you're going to improve the end product. Now at the OE level, you you get this argument a lot though. Well, the OE is not doing that. It it just depends on what you want. What what do you see as your satisfaction level? You know, quality is in the eye of the end user, right? What's their, it's all about perception. I want it to be to this specific level you will see improvement with torque plates. You don't necessarily have to use the torque plates. If you're going to accept a given number of leakage, then then fine. But you know, the simple answer is you should always see an improvement. Now there's some caveats to that. You have to make sure that you do your homework and because how many heads have a big hole in the center? So what you really need to do is bore and hone a cylinder then apply the gasket you want to use, torque the head to spec, take all the measurements and see what that yields, then put a torque plate on. And then you have to kind of play around with the torques and the what yields what the head gasket gave you. And that's where a lot of people miss it. They automatically want to throw a torque plate on and torque it to whatever the specification for the head is. That doesn't necessarily work. has done a ton of research on that they actually have an ankle meter or a pack gauge and they can tell you what the bore truly looks like because a dial bore gauge can't really tell you out of round it's just there's no reference point the dial bore gauge tells you the distance from a to b so you can't see if a cylinder looks like an accordion uh if you have a banana shaped hole or something of that nature and That gets into the tooling of the honing part of it, but you know, a torque plate will create all of the stresses. If again, if you're using the correct head gasket and the correct fastener load, it will make improvements.
0: Anything to add, Bob?
1: No, I think Chuck covered that pretty well. Uh, uh, Again, just just what you know to reiterate what he said is. You know, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna make a difference and it's all of what you want. Uh, in reference to a, uh, an OE, original equipment manufacturer, not using torque plates. Remember, they're doing nothing but brand spanking new product. And it, it, it's important for speed for those guys. And that's why they eliminate the torque plate when they're, when they're building a brand new engine. That's one of the reasons. Okay, uh,
0: another question is, is hot honing still a thing?
1: Uh, I'll take that first, uh, because we, we really uh, got into it quite heavily for a long time. And the reason for it was, you know, it, we want to cre- recreate again what that engine is doing when it's running. Uh, and, it, uh, you know, you, it's a lot of work, first off, because you got to heat the engine up. Then you got to use two separate dial board gauges because one heats up and throws throws the numbers off. So you're going back and forth and back and forth. And the bottom line is is we have created in the racing industry a much better block with compacted graphite and things of that nature uh, that that eliminates that hot honing process. Uh, now, that being said, I don't know, there are still a few people out there with aluminum blocks that they're still using the hot honing process,
0: but not like they used to. Is that kind of what you're seeing, Chuck?
2: Absolutely. You know, you look at the nineties and we, we were, doing, you know, vibratory stress relief of, of castings, hot honing and so forth. And you just, not so much anymore. I think we have better engineering and development packages and software, and we can predict and forecast for some of that. And we, as Bob said, we do a better job making our blocks, better materials, better structural design, understanding and intent before we get to that point
0: another question from the audience and again you can type in your questions at the bottom of the zoom screen there's a chat option just open up and start typing uh what is your opinion on three-point micrometer type board gauges versus a traditional two-point dial board gauge at the point 0001 inch increments any thoughts on that pop
1: uh i i i truly believe that's a two-point for uh, that I mean sun and makes and of course you, you know there's also uh, uh, a way to centralize that point so to speak with the with the feet that are on the outside of the dial bore gauge uh, we've always had very good success not just in the automotive internal combustion engine but uh, just as well with the uh, with some of the really really tight tolerances that we see in the industrial world uh, you know uh, at three point point probably in some applications, not necessarily the internal combustion engine, but in some really t- like millionths or better uh, tolerances, a three point may work a little better, but the, I, would, I wouldn't recommend it for, for our industry. I mean, if you really want it checked right, like Chuck said earlier, check it with the pad cage and that'll tell you the real story and, and what real cylindricity is chuck
0: anything
2: to add to that I think I think bob pretty well hit it three points is easy to use because three legs never wobble and it's easy to kind of find your place in the board but it can only average uh, I have quite a bit of experience with the uh, three- point gauges and you're just averaging if you think about an egg you can make it contact uh, but it, you just don't get the exact result and we may get into this some. Further on, but if you look at orders of geometry, uh, it gets to be a real challenge with many bore or the like. You can have a cylinder that actually is ultimately looks like a triangle, a clover leaf, things of that nature, and they can they can give you headaches when you're dealing with the the effect. Whether it's cylinder leakage kind of gets back to the uh, torque plates, but. Most of the gauges will still give you, like a dial bore gauge, or if you were to mic a valve stem that uh, has lobing, it'll still maybe mic. Say we're going to use the number 516s, sixteenths, three hundred twelve thousandths. It'll mic that as you rotate it, but it's actually just you're always hitting on the high spots. You can't catch the low spots, and you know three points in the cylinder just it adds complexity to trying to diagnose what the problem is.
0: Okay, all right. Uh, Here's another question. Is it okay to mill all blocks and heads to multi-layer shim, MLS, gasket specification?
2: Okay, I'll run with that one. Uh, It is... It's risky. As gasket manufacturers have improved the manufacturing process. And actually one of the my team members, uh, he's a gasket design engineer. And I challenged him to this question not too long ago because it came on the tech line. And he's like, you know, definitely you need to look at the construction of the gasket and stick to that. Uh, MLS gaskets, they have a lot of head lift off. Is what they're trying to accommodate. So you're working with a spring and your fasteners torque to yield fasteners or stretch bolts as they're sometimes referred to. So you know you're lifting the head off and these things are help bring it back to home. But you also have lateral expansion of castings. Well those multi-layer steel shim gaskets give you an opportunity for that stuff to all kind of orbit it around and not scuff. If you were to use uh, a cast iron block, aluminum head, and conventional fasteners, you kind of need something to keep that gasket put. So you need a little bit of traction. So they're going to usually be a little rougher on the iron block than they are on the aluminum head where they want it to slide on the gasket. Uh, so you're better to really follow the gasket manufacturer's recommendations. Uh, they are doing things like what we call heated pre-flattening, where they put the, the gasket in a big, flattener it's a big platen it's kind of like uh, the old steam presses for clothes so they put the gasket in there apply temperature and load so that you know you don't have to go like the old days and run it for so many hours or so many minutes get it at operating temperature it used to be a common to say okay after an engine runs a certain period of time you retorque the gaskets and rerun the lash so they've tried to get away from that uh but just saying, hey, let's just mill everything all the same. It's risky. I wouldn't advise it.
0: Go ahead, Bob.
1: Oh, I, I was only gonna say uh, Chuck hit it on, on the head. I, I, I don't have anything to really add to that.
0: Okay. Uh, what parameters do I need if I'm going to order a profilometer for bore finishes?
1: Uh, I would recommend that you have the following that you can do, RA, RPK, RK, RVK, and then have the ability to also check MR1 and MR2. Uh, those are really the parameters that, that we need uh, in, in the modern engine today, and that's as, that's as critical as a dial bore gauge would be today because the surface finishes have become to the point where we really need to measure them beyond using your fingernail and say, that's good enough. But uh, just to elaborate a little bit on that, your RPK is a reduced peak height, okay? That's the top, that's what the ring's gonna see when the front motor first fires up and that's generally gonna be a low number. And then your RK, that's your thats your core roughness. That's basically what that ring is going to ride on after the motor is broken. Your RVK is your reduced valley depth. RVK is very important. That's what's going to hold the oil. It's, uh, and that's, that's where we need it to be. RVK numbers have actually come up a little bit. Uh, uh, compared to when we first start measuring them, especially on some crazy applications on some of these diesel motors out there. Uh, your MR1 would be your peak material ratio. That's gonna be a percentage, not a number. Uh, it's gonna tell you you know, 5% or 10% or 80%. That's gonna be a percentage. Your MR2 is your valley material ratio. Again, that's a percentage. So uh, it's very, very important. It's if you're going to be a modern-day engine builder, it's it's just as important to have a profilometer in your toolbox as it has to have a zero to one inch micrometer. So yes, it's an important tool.
0: Very good, Chuck.
2: Those are very good points, Bob. And that said, then you if you have the profilometer, then you're going to be able to measure your gasket surface finishes, your crank housing bore, your cam bore finishes everything else you know it it matters in every part of engine building but as you pointed out you know dial it's just as important as the dial bore gauge or the hone head itself um uh, you know i just did an article in engine professional lag magazine last quarter speaking to some of that and i did reach out to sun and then rotler and everyone that's you know in this and we were talking about some of the things that people typically don't think of, so they want to know, hey, what abrasive do I get the surface finish with? Well, as you mentioned earlier, Bob, compacted graphite. What's the hardness of compacted graphite? What about the ductile sleeve you're going to use? What about a block that's fiber-reinforced aluminum? So you really need to know because that's just, that's one part of it. Now, what about how, what's your filtration system for your home? As I pick, have I, When I hone, I create swarf. So my cooling system will pick up trash if I don't filter it well enough. I blow that trash right back in to the cylinder that I'm honing. So that's that's a variable. Am I using a synthetic-based coolant? Am I using petroleum-based? Am I using brushes? So, you know, you start to think about all these variables. Uh, Do I remember where I was at when the phone rang and it interrupted me? So variable, variable, variable. Well, if I got a profilometer, I can still measure. Uh, If I don't have a profilometer and I haven't tracked my variables, then I got chaos. So chaos is not good. (laughs) (laughs) Sure isn't. Very
0: good. Uh, Another question. Can I adjust oil clearances by honing rod and main housing board diameters? Bob?
1: Uh, that's dangerous. Don't do that. (laughs) Because the bearing has to have crush on it. And the minute you start taking some of that crush away by opening up that that housing to give you more clearance, you're you're asking for trouble. Uh, You should always, whether it's a connecting rod or whether it's a main bore, stay within the manufacturer's specifications on that. That's the only way to do it. Now, with a cracked rod today, of course, we, we can't cut the caps and cut the rod anymore. But what is available out there is some oversized bearings and that's okay because it's still creating the correct crush. So it's very, very critical as far as I'm concerned and that, and that engine is concerned, I should say, that it has the correct size in, in, in that housing bore. It needs to be right.
0: Chuck, just check with you,
2: anything to add on that? Yes. Uh, Yeah, you don't know where the bearing supplier is on the material that they use for the steel backing. What is their crush height tolerance? That, you know, there's a, you got eccentricity, you got crush relief, you got crush height. Most, we don't have the tools to accurately measure that in the machine shop typically. So if they tell you this is the bore diameter range, Be safe and stick to that.
0: Yeah. Very good. Here's a question from the audience. Again, just use the chat option at the bottom of the Zoom screen, writing your question. Uh, You mentioned vibratory stress relieving. Is it useful for aluminum blocks? Bob? Uh, I'll
1: let Chuck take that
0: one.
2: The process has kind of lost favor, it, it, it was very again in the 90s the early 2000s it was it was it was pretty popular. It was recommended for a, about any kind of material a, you know aluminum you still have induced stresses uh, oftentimes you have cracks and castings or whatever so it's it, it was some induced stress that relieved itself. Now when you have aluminum block then you usually have, cast-in sleeves or maybe pressed-in sleeves. Uh, more lately we've got modular integrated deck sleeves but back at that time there was a lot of just cast-in sleeves Look looked like maybe it had a spline or a string wrapped around the sleeve. So if you could do some vibratory relaxation and any of those stresses would then really show themselves then you may have to go and hone the cylinder or make some changes. There's probably not a downside to it. Kind of like the Uh, you know, if you deep freeze the parts. So anytime you can accentuate that stress or relieve that stress, then, you know, it's kind of like running the engine first and then go and touch up all the specifications. Now I'm no longer working with a green casting that may move around a lot. So downside to it, I can't really think of any except for time and equipment. Yeah, okay, It makes
0: sense. There's a question from our friend at 66 Salvage Restoration Speed Shop. Uh, talking, uh, I'll just read it. Talking racing, let's talk about the fine tolerances of racing block specs versus average block specs. Example tolerances of dirt track 602 crates versus a mud bog truck versus your regular built blocks for average drivability. that trigger something in you guys?
2: <clears throat> well i guess i would you know maybe speak to oil clearances and engine speed dictates some of the decisions that you make there I mean, power output heat you know, you have to, you would fine-tune the pistons but then you should really talk to the manufacturer because what about coatings you know do i have a a coated crown or just coated skirts. What kind of rings am I going to use? Uh, rings are underappreciated for how much of a heat sink they are. So as we reduce the axial on rings, we increase the temperature load that they have so you can have micro welding and things. So I guess it, it would have to be more specific to that particular build and, and where it's going to be, you know, RPM wise, horsepower wise, uh, duty cycle wise. Okay. So it's a mud bog Are all the mud bogs going to be the same distance. So, sorry, that's probably not a great answer, but that's the challenge.
0: Everything's so uh, individualized in in racing, you know, I mean, and it's getting more micro all the time. Uh, I, I'd like to add just one little thing to
2: that
1: if I may uh, the uh, uh, soned products for close to a, over a year now we have been working with a company that is working on a a, a process it's it's not a coding or anything like that it's a process that impregnates into the surface and it, it, it's you know, honing applications, and that's why we're involved with it. Uh, I would uh, keep my eyes open here in the very near future, and uh, when we officially come out with it and see what this process does, but it will definitely help in the uh, in, in the engine build. It's it's a friction reducer, is what it is. That's what it does.
0: Okay. Little we'll, we'll well, story on Epar Trade. So uh, when it comes out, we'll okay, it on, it'll be on our homepage. Absolutely, absolutely. Will, will it be by the first of the year, you think? Uh, I would, yeah, I,
1: I, yeah, again, I'm saying yes, and you know, I'm just a consultant right now, so, uh, but I would say yes, and this is going to push Sonny to work a little harder on it, okay?
0: <laughs> we look forward to that. Thank you. How much material can be honed with single pass valve guide tooling, Bob? Huh?
1: Uh, the normal process for single pass tooling is to remove uh, right around a uh, half of a thousandth of an inch, five tenths. Uh, don't, you know, I know people out there with single pass tooling try to remove more than that. And it really depends on the material. It's like any kind of process. What's the material made out of? And. Uh, you know, but I, in my experience, if you try to go more than a half a thousandth of an inch with a single pass tool, uh, you're setting yourself up for trouble.
0: Jack?
2: Yeah, I would just uh, follow with what Bob shared there. Uh, you know, when I was in the shop, I worked with Sonnen on this uh, on a couple of different occasions. So good products. Okay,
0: uh, another question. What creates the best overall bore geometry in a honed cylinder? Bob? Uh
1: There's a lot of things. <laughs> uh, first off is, uh, and importantly, is tooling. The tooling has to be correct. Uh, the abrasives, what abrasives are you using? They need to be correct as to what kind of surface finish you're trying to come up with. And that all relates to uh, to overall geometry. Uh, The uh, feed speed uh, and the feed itself, uh, the speed of the tool, how fast is it uh, stroking and what the tool speed itself is. What type of coolant are you using? Are you using oil? Are you using a a, a synthetic coolant? what is the block material made out of? So uh, again, you know, th- these are all things that are variables today that need to be addressed. And it, I, are you dealing with a virgin block that's never been worked before? Or are you dealing with something that's been work hardened? And those numbers can vary. A Rockwell hardness test is something that you know, some of uh, the machine shops are using today just to find out that information and start building a log as to, okay, this is how I deal with that particular material. Uh, so it's, it, it's some of its trial and error, I would say, but most of it is you need to just build, uh, you know, exactly how you're going to uh, uh, approach that application. It's application, application, application.
0: That Anything to add, Chuck?
2: No, I think that that covers it.
0: Another question. Uh, We have, I'll just read it. We have primarily used three step cylinder honing processes, 220 to 280 brushes, uh, vitrified, but have heard of recent changes to a two step process. uh, 180 or even 80 grit and straight to uh, 400 grit. Any preferences in either process? Chuck?
2: <clears throat> again, I would go back to what's, what ring is going to run against that cylinder and then, you know, the, let the profilometer tell you what what the values are. Uh, the ring is really going to dictate that. You know, Bob has mentioned in the upcoming process that's going to reduce friction by the, the the cylinder process. But, you know, rings like, TLC, uh, titanium nitride coated, gas nitride, the steel rings, they don't have the, the moly coat in the face of the ring, which is absorbing a lot of oil. So it has to be in the bore. So you really need to know what ring you're running against the bore to to actually make that decision. Now in the diamond world, there are a lot of folks that are using one diamond abrasive and then a brush. It's very common, happens all the time. But again, I hate to say, hey, you should do this abrasive and not know what ring you're intending to run against it.
1: Yeah, there, as far as surface finish, like, you know, to say what, basically what Chuck just covered and covered very well is there's the application, again, depending on what you're going to do with it, what type of ring you're going to have, again, what the hardness of the material is that you're honing, uh, I mean, in today's world, the diamonds do make better geometry. I mean, any uh, super abrasives period, whether it be diamond or, or whether it be CBN, uh, it's, it's gonna determine your geometry and that's what you're looking for, the best geometry and the best surface finish. Uh, you know, the, your typical numbers on 90% of the applications, uh, you're looking at an RPK of like 10 to 15 and your RK is 40 to 45 and your RBK is 50 to 55. And then there's beyond that. I mean, you get into some crazy uh, diesel applications and you may have an RVK that's a hundred plus. So again, application is important and then building the process from the application. Very good.
0: Chuck, Does Chuck with you anything to add?
2: No, I I think that's, that covers it.
0: (laughs) Uh, When installing new pistons on a connecting rod,
1: should a small end be honed? Uh, that was a very large mistake made back in the days of pressed pistons on connecting rods. Because pistons, generally new pistons, oversized pistons, come with a bigger pin. Five tenths, usually larger. So we would use an oven to heat up that that uh, that connecting rod, so we could push the pin in, or we use a press, and all you're doing is stressing the small end of the connecting rod by doing that. The other uh, thing that you need to be careful of today is, you know, if in fact the pins are a little bit bigger, but you also got a bushing in that rod today where most of them today are full floating, you always need to check it. And it's very, very important to do that, is always check both your piston as well as your pin and your connecting rod, all three of those. and uh, does make a very good gauge for that, our AG 300 gauge, AG 400 gauge, and it's easy to set up to be able to check with just using the pin to set that gauge up. So yes, to answer your question, we need to be aware of it. We need to check it, and in most cases we need to hone it.
0: Yeah, very good. Uh, Chuck,
2: The only thing I would add is, you know, performance world, most of the stuff's full floating with retaining locks and so forth. And the automotive sector has gone back around. So things kind of go full circle at times, but with powder metal connecting rods or forgings that are getting near net, they get really skinny on the small end. uh, So there's just, you know, less inertial mass up on that end. They, Have reduced how wide the top of the connecting rod is and then again the PEM products since there's not a whole lot of mass around the pin in more piston pins have come loose so you're seeing the OEs are even going back to full floating with retaining locks so that the press fit thing is greatly diminished which means it's probably even that much more important that you really look at that pretty closely. Uh, I'm speaking from experience seeing several applications that we, we redesigned the piston even when they were press fit because so many pins got loose because again, there's not that much retaining mass around the piston pin. So if you do some homework, you might find that you can take that old powder metal rod and just hone it oversize. You don't even have to put a bushing in and then you can make that a full floating application. Okay. And then uh, we're
0: gonna get closer here to 10 and we'll wrap it up at 10. Uh, Bob, as we talk about twenty twenty one new product introductions, new machinery that's coming on board, and we think of uh, Sun-in, uh and then a beautiful showcase on EPart Trade. I mean, everybody should go to the Sunn showcase on EPart Trade, and you've got a lot to go over, including technical papers and videos and everything. Um, mm-hmm. Is there something that's either kind of been new at Sunn, or is about to be new that you could talk about? uh when it comes to machinery and especially when it comes to uh, race engine builders uh
1: probably uh, a- again we're we're uh we're looking at different processes on our honing machines and and what we can do to make it better uh there's you know for example on our sv30 which has been evolving over the years with the different things that we can turn on and we can turn off uh that is uh uh, uh, very, very critical to the racing engine today. Uh, and again, we're looking at uh, some, some tooling that would be uh, uh, give better geometry. We're looking at our abrasives, all those things. And Sunnet is always on top of that. Uh, and always testing and trying to find, uh, for the use of a better word, a better mousetrap. Okay, uh, you know honing isn't what it was back in 1928 29 when Joe Sonnen first started his company. Uh, it's it's evolved and it's going to continue to evolve as things come down the line. Uh, and, and that's that's the best I could, you know, I can say for right now. Otherwise, I had to give away trade secrets.
0: You <laughs> can't have that. We'll go viral.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh,
0: and then, uh, you know, the shop owner thinks about buying a, a machine, a piece of machinery to fill a need. But it seems like as he's shopping around for uh, machinery, he, he ought to really learn also what's the training program or process that goes with, with it. Bob, do you have any insight on that, any advice? Oh,
1: absolutely. That's, you know, one of my biggest nevices out there. Uh, when I was out there calling on customers is, uh, you know, you give them a lot of information about your machine and everything and then they go out and buy a used one they expect you to train them for free. Uh, You know, that don't happen. That's not the real world. Uh, You need to have that training that is so critical today because again, there's so many different variables as far as, uh, you know, what's in the computer We're computer drive units, obviously, Uh, and, that 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 training is not just about learning to hone. It's about learning to use that machine. Would not sell any machine out there uh, that didn't include some kind of training with it. Uh, and, and again, you know, the automotive is 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 good, but remember, we have an industrial side of our business, and that industrial side. I mean, we're talking about maybe doing fifty thousand widgets, and the training on that is very very critical. So we learn from the industrial world and we bring it over to the performance world to help you understand it better. And
0: and the AERA is kind of all about training is that right?
2: Absolutely and I actually head up that effort um, whether I go one site or and work with the equipment suppliers as well because they're members of the association as well so my first thing to do is to reach out and say, Hey, here's my scenario. Do you want to take this or should I represent the cause? And so we work very closely together, but yes, I, I do some on-site training. Um, I've been out several times this year and even with, with COVID, you know, but we've still made it work in, in the areas where we could make it work.
0: Very cool. Here's a question from the audience. Uh, do you have any comments in regard to irregularity in cylinder uh, finish resulting from finishing a cylinder with a brush rather than a fine grit stone? Well,
1: uh, you, uh, yeah, you, you, you very well could have a little bit of irregularity with that. Uh, and again, it depends on the tool that you, the brush is in. You know, so, some people uses brushes, use brushes on the end of a drill. Uh, Now, you're, you know, the end of a drill is going to be far different than actually putting a brush in a tool. So, there's where you really get some variables, all right, uh, versus a fine grit stone. Now, with a, you know, the thing with a brush is you're not going to remove material with a brush. With a fine grit stone, I don't care how fine it is, you can remove some material. So, you got to take all those things into consideration before you go attempting to do, change your process. But again, you need to look at your process. You need to measure, measure, measure and see what it's doing.
0: Very good. Chuck.
2: Right. I you know, the the procedural documentation at what load, how many strokes. And, and you know, that's the stuff that's a challenge with the with the older machines. The new CNC machines take a lot of that out of the equation for you. Uh, there's actually even dual stage hone heads that have two different abrasives in, uh, or you could have run an abrasive and a brush and take those things, that decision-making part of it out. Now, people tend to still tend to do things like interrupt cycles so that they can check something, say they just needed to, oh, I wanna take that last 10th or two, and they won't let the thing go through the full automation cycle and interrupt. So. I mean, it's really about having a good process that you know that works. Uh, as Bob mentioned, the the brushes is really to clean. Uh, you should really have your your patented process down, and then the brush is going to get rid of torn and folded materials and wipe out the valleys. And you know that's the design intention there. It's not supposed to be your honing process I mean it should be the process of to the end in of the process but you want to establish your finish with your abrasives.
0: Okay. Yeah. and uh, I just want to ask a question about the tooling so do you have any best advice and maybe fix some errors or you've seen out there in the in, especially in the race uh, engine business for the care and management of tooling. Bob?
1: Uh. well very very important with tooling keep it clean I mean if you if you don't keep it clean it's not going to work right remember that that tooling is is, is just as higher precision as what you're trying to create and if you got a tool that's dirty you're not going to create precision okay so that's number one and most important is to keep the tooling clean all the time uh, that and, and there's yeah, obviously there's different types of tooling, uh, you know, as to what you're trying to accomplish with it. And again, that's where our application engineers uh, that are at Sun and products can help you through that process and choose the correct tooling for your needs. So those are the, those are the two fine points I
0: believe about tooling. Very good. Chuck?
2: <laughs> the one thing that I think I would add and Bob can really appreciate this is filtration. You know, whether it's the, the mats that lay in the bottom of your home, your filters on the system, if you want to add filtration, uh, pressure differential gauges so that you can see how well your filtration is working, because that same abrasive media that you're using to break down your cylinder is still traveling through your home head and every other component, universal joints, the shoes, the feed cones, everything else is being exposed to that as well. So filter, 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 clean, clean, clean.
0: Yeah. Okay, another question from the audience. Um, what can you do if a block should be decked and its numbers matching and the owner doesn't want the numbers removed?
1: You can take that with Chuck.
2: <laughs> okay. You can get pretty crafty, uh, even if you have a big fly cutter, mill as far as you can, and then you're probably going to have to do another setup and and maybe use a small end mill or something of that nature and like a bridge port. Uh, if you're in the, if you're using it like a CNC machine, then you can just choose a smaller end mill or fly cutter or something and make multiple passes to get all the way across that deck and then leave those numbers. Uh, if you want to give me a call on the tech line, I've been put in that position quite a few times in my career. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, like DZ 302 or something like that, that, Hey, that Camaro is matched. And I want to make sure this stuff's all, all matching. So you got to get pretty crafty on how to save that, make it look good enough that, you know, it doesn't detract from the value of the vehicle. So yeah, good, good question. Yeah.
0: Um, and then if somebody is listening and they haven't really evaluated their honing program in years, uh, what's the biggest change or advance in the past five or 10 years that should make them reconsider uh, what they're doing. Bob? Uh,
1: material applications, uh, there's uh, obviously the rings, the block, all those things have changed. And uh, I mean, you just look at what's happened in the computer world and how fast we change. You can buy a computer tomorrow and it'd be out of date next year or even before then. You know, we have a lot of people out there, engineers out there that want to recreate the wheel. And that's always going to happen. So you have to stay on top of it. If you're going to stay in business, it's that simple. Yeah.
0: Yep. Chuck, that makes sense to me. Uh, anything to add there?
2: You know, just some, for examples, uh, how the race world stuff has introduced itself into the common after, or, you know, that, the products that we see every day. Uh, In 2010, the the 6.4 Navistar went from an iron block to a compacted graphite. The 6.7 Cummins is compacted graphite. The 2.7 liter EcoBoost is compacted graphite. So we're gonna have plenty of opportunities to be working on high performance materials. And, you know, as Bob mentioned, you know, processes, uh, nailed it, nail your processes. And then if there's some opportunity to do something, look at your honing, uh, these controls on the machines now, take a lot of this as we mentioned early they do minimize the things you have to do hey what about this part of the equation did I do okay I used a roughing abrasive and then I went to a fending or a medium abrasive now my finish abrasive well okay so I need that to be at 15 percent load and I need to do five strokes well this thing's going to count all of that for me I don't have to did I hit the bottom did I watch that light flash five times you know it takes that out of it that's that's a real challenge that can be. It's not going to go away because there's always Murphy exists, right? We're in the mechanical parts world. Murphy exists, and you know when you look at processes, you got man, method, machine, and as long as a man's touching it, there's opportunity for Murphy to come in, and uh, but it can really improve the end result with uh, a repeatable process and the electronics to help support that.
0: Okay. You know, we're getting to right at 10 a.m. and we try to wrap these things up in an hour so everybody can get back to work and uh, we could talk to you for another couple hours on this subject. Uh, it, this has been great. Uh, thank you so much. And then uh, any parting words of wisdom when it comes to strategies for machining a race engine? Bob? Uh, I would
1: only say again, but what I, I'll reiterate what I've said, and that is applications Learn how to set your process up. Take the time to evaluate your process. That's very, very important. Uh, if you do that and you do your homework, you'll be a winner.
0: Thank you, Bob. Chad.
2: You know, I'm going to steal some Franklin Covey stuff here. Begin with the end in mind. You know, have a plan for where you want to be. And then, you know, when once you know what you're looking for, then, okay, the right right surface finish for the those DLC coated rings. Uh, how flat does this thing need to be? What's the surface roughness? Because I'm gonna use MLS gaskets. I'm gonna use such piston or whatever. You know, so know where you wanna end up. These guys are, uh, they're crafty and they're thinkers and they'll do their research. And so uh, that's the biggest thing. Just know where you wanna be, I think.
0: Very good. I should have enjoyed this guys. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight and your history with us. Um, looking ahead again, uh, online race industry week, November 30th to December 4th. Uh, do us a favor go online and, and register for the single Zoom login. That'll take you through the whole week at, at no charge. Um, Sunin is participating. So you can see a new product line from Sunn on EparTrade. Uh, you can go to it now and see what they have. And it's really uh, one of the best showcases on ePAR trade. So that wraps it up for our seminar on machining strategies for race engines. Uh, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, sunan And uh, we'll, we'll see you again uh, next time.
1: Okay. Thank you. Thank you. you. All right. thank you.